This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. He's just a hack. He's just an absolute hack. And he gets his ass kicked by his teammates every week. It's just, you know, it's terrible. It's just terrible. We are back live here on Hack City for the College Football Week 7 Reaction Show. I'm Joe DeLeon. Guys, if you're joining us, either live or on the replay, drop a comment in the chat or just on the comments on this video. Let me know your thoughts on, on Week 7 of college football. I think we all can agree here that the hype that was leading into this week, there was a lot of thought and discussion and, and just the overall statement that this Weekend of college football was one of the best slates that we're going to have all season. And it absolutely lived up to the hype. We got multiple late comeback victories, last second field goals, late touchdowns, especially in the big games. Oklahoma State TCU was exciting. Tennessee, Alabama was extremely exciting. And then it capped off the night with a fantastic game between USC and and Utah. We're going to talk about all of that today. Folks, if you're joining us again, hit that like button, drop a comment. Let me know what you think. Before we do get into this stuff, I just want to tell everybody, make sure you head to Bet Online. Uh, if you are like me and you like betting on college football games, Bet Online is where you want to be going for that. I always use that for all my games. They have updated odds, everything, and fast, easy payout. Everything is easy and simple to use for bet online. And if you're going to use it, make sure you use code believe 50. That's code B L E A V 50 on bet online Head online to head on over to BetOnline.ag and use that promo code. All right. I want to start things off talking about Tennessee versus Alabama. This is the obvious first starter of what we're going to start talking about because it's the thing that has set the college football world ablaze. The outcome of this game has a massive aftershock in the grand scheme of college football for the remainder of the season. And it obviously stems from the fact that Alabama suffered a loss this early on in the year. There's a lot to be taken away from this game. And I think the big thing first here, there is a massive debate on who now deserves to be the number one team in the country. And I think after what we witnessed yesterday, And I love to overreact on this show. Anyone who tunes into me on a weekly basis knows I love to overreact. And here I am doing it again. Tennessee deserves to be the number one ranked team in the country after that game. Find me another team so far this season that has a more impressive resume than Tennessee. They have wins against Pitt, Florida, LSU, and now a top-ranked Alabama team that is going to finish the season in the top 10 and very likely will compete for an SEC championship game and can still win the SEC championship game. That resume is better than anybody else's. Ohio State is yet to really play a competitive opponent, and their key victory is against Notre Dame, who looked like shit this past weekend, which I'm going to talk about at the end of the show. Georgia, on the other hand, has stumbled a hair in some games, They obviously dominated Vanderbilt. That does not take very much work for them to dominate against Vanderbilt. 
But they do have that Oregon victory, which looks more and more impressive. And if you're a Georgia fan, you're going to be rooting for Oregon to win because that is going to help that resume in that case for Georgia to be the number one team in the country. But the way that Tennessee has shown up on a week-to-week basis in a dominant fashion, despite dealing with injuries like losing Cedric Tillman, and to continue to be so offensively explosive game in and game out proves to me that they deserve to be the number one team in the country. I understand that there are concerns defensively. They gave up a crap ton of points to Alabama, a game in which Bryce Young was recovering from an injury, and Alabama has not necessarily been consistent offensively. They've been very run-centric, and they gave up 49 points to this team. But the way that they have shown up, and when adversity has hit, they have recovered, shows me that they deserve to be the number one team in the country. We cannot allow previous rankings to impact where Tennessee sits. That always ends up being a negative for when the polls are put together by pundits. I got distracted by Colin. Say, uh, thank, thank you for the, thank you for the like con. Whenever the polls are put together by pundits, there is always this decision for whatever reason, this bias, if you will, to react based on what happened to last week's rankings. I am always of the belief that you should start from scratch every single week and look at the resume, look how they did this past week. How does that impact your opinion? How does that impact how you feel about the team at this point in time? The way that Tennessee showed up, the way that they looked, they looked like the best team in the country right now. Georgia looked like it early on in the season, taking a slight step back. Ohio State, again, has not played anybody. Before I can put them them at number one or Georgia at number one, they need to have defining wins in order to be pushed ahead of Tennessee. Tennessee has that defining win, and they prove that they deserve to be in that spot. Now, the one key thing for Tennessee here, and this is so extremely important, Josh Heupel cannot allow his team to hang their hat on this victory. They cannot allow this game to be the high point of their season. There was a massive celebration after that victory, which was exciting, which was fun. We watched the goalposts get carried out of the stadium and thrown into a river. How many times have we seen that in college football? But if this team lives off of the excitement of that one victory, they might crash and burn. We have seen it endlessly on a multi-season basis. Teams will come in and beat the best team in the country and then ultimately get too hungover on that win, and then we'll stumble in a later week. Tennessee needs to move forward and put this game behind them. They need to move on to the next with the expectation that the next game is the most important one. They need to almost not... I wouldn't even bring up this game if I'm Josh Heupel for the remainder of the season. I wouldn't talk about it. Move on to the next game. Focus on your next opponent, because if they don't, they could end up suffering a stupid loss somewhere down on their schedule. Now, I have high expectations and a high hope, and some of the things that you heard from particularly Hendon Hooker, what he talked about after this game, I think that they're more than capable of moving on and continuing on, but that is the sign of a good head coach if you can move on to the next week without allowing the high point that is an upset victory against a rival to drag you down when you need to keep progressing forward. The next important game for Tennessee to be their next defining moment is how they play against Georgia. 
they have to beat Georgia in order to make it into the SEC championship, SEC championship game. Just off the top of my head, that game is going to be imperative for Tennessee if they want to continue this historic run. And we're obviously going to preview that game when that comes down to it. But ultimately, again, they cannot allow this high point to be their grand achievement on the season. I will say, though, and I think I might do an extra video after this talking about where the Heisman standings sit. And Hendon Hooker has done everything, everything that a Heisman winning quarterback needs to do. He has the statistics. He has the jaw-dropping performances and the massive game-winning plays in multiple games so far this season. He is a part of what is a storybook season for Tennessee, and he is the main reason why they are winning. It's nothing that they're doing on defense. And I know, you know Jalen Hyatt had five touchdowns on six receptions in a huge game. That performance is commendable, but Hendon Hooker is the reason why they're winning, and he is the reason why they will continue to win games. Even if they suffer one or two losses by the end of this season, they still, or sorry, Hendon Hooker still will have the credentials, the resume, if you will, to be the Heisman winning quarterback at the end of this year. And I don't think there should be any disagreement on that. I don't think there should be any argument. I know that there's some people that are saying that CJ Stroud should be uh, in the conversation and be a part of this debate. But again, Ohio State has not played anybody. Hendon Hooker won this game for Tennessee over one of the best teams in the country. That, to me, is a Heisman moment. That game as a whole is a Heisman moment. No, Colin, nobody is putting Stetson Bennett uh, leading the Heisman race. And I I know that I made that video a couple, you know, a little bit ago, and he, he was in the conversation. His stock has dropped, and I think he's out of the discussion. Um, but, you know, it kind of, you can kind of make that argument. You can make that argument for Stetson Bennett. If if he recovers and I mean, like he's a big reason why they they've done well on offense, but Stroud Hendon hooker have had much better seasons so far. And I think Stetson Bennett's, you know, a little slow stretch for Georgia's offense and Georgia in general might hurt him from being a part of that discussion. And then just to quickly hit on this other comment you had, should future expectations affect rankings? I don't like to look ahead. And I think that power rankings are a better tool for this when talking about future expectations because like a power ranking to me is a way of saying like okay who on paper is the best team like who on paper is going to win on a on a week-to-week basis on a neutral field who has the best roster and also the wins to back it up I look at the poll as who has done everything so far and who has the best resume to prove that they are the better team amongst themselves that is how those polls are typically built so future expectations shouldn't really impact that. It, it, it's going to inherently, subconsciously, maybe impact that decision-making. And I think that's why a lot of polls have Ohio State or Georgia as one, because there's that future expectation that they're going to win their conferences, that they're going to be in the college football playoff. I just think that you need to look at what's happened so far. And I don't think anyone else has had a more impressive resume and a more impressive season and more impressive performances on a week-to-week basis. They have looked dominant in every single game that they've played. I think Pitt was the one game where they looked a little slow because I think we can all agree that they should have blown out Pitt and they let them hang around and they went into overtime with them when they, again, should have blown them out. But every other game besides that, and they still look dominant offensively in that game. There are some defensive issues that need to be corrected, 
but offensively, they're good enough to beat any team in the SEC, and I think they're good enough to beat Georgia in that game later on in the season. I've heard that Bo Nix will be the Heisman favorite if Oregon beats UCLA. So I know that you're trying to get a rise out of me, but to actually provide a reaction to this, if Bo Nix does beat UCLA, I think that he leapfrogs Dorian Thompson-Robinson for that Pac-12 spot. Caleb Williams lost, and I think that there were a lot of mistakes that he made. I don't. I think he's part of the conversation as like somebody in the top seven, but Caleb Williams slides down a little bit after the Utah loss. I think Bo Nix, it's hard to make that argument for him. Is the My problem with Bo Nix, why I can't put him in the discussion, he will push himself, himself ahead of DTR, like I just said, but the thing with Bo Nix is that that first game is going to be held against him. You can't you can't really make the Heisman argument when he looked ab abysmal. He looked really freaking bad in that Georgia game. I know I've like kind of been a, a little bit of an Oregon hater so far, and a lot of the Oregon fans that follow the channel have kind of called me out on it for being a, a bit of a UCLA homer, which kind of justified I'm not a UCLA fan. It's right down the street, basically, for me. It's 20 minutes away from where I live in Los Angeles. But, I mean, Bo's had a good season. Bo Nix is having fun. He's having a great time. He's enjoying himself. <laughs> and he's winning football games right now. He has him being able to, like you're saying, have fun and enjoy himself in a way is what's leading to their success. He doesn't have to do everything. They're running the ball well. Their defense is turning the ball over. They're making plays in important games. I'm really excited to watch this game this weekend. The UCLA Oregon game is going to seriously impact the landscape of the Pac 12 and the college football playoff. Because ultimately, maybe who wins that game is the Pac-12 team that is brought up in the discussion for that fourth spot. There is going to be a really exciting debate to be had for who fits in that fourth spot after the things that have happened over the past week. All right, I want to move on to USC-Utah because this game, as I was just mentioning, and it's a good segue here, USC-Utah really create separation for how the standings look and the final outcome of the Pac-12. I have to take a little bit of, of, of a victory lap here because, you know, I make a lot of mistakes and I say a lot of stupid shit on this show because I, I try to, you know, stand by my takes and say them with intent and, and back, try to back them up. I know that I make a lot of aggressive takes. And I said that USC was going to win this game. I thought that they were going to win it. But the thing that if anyone who's tuned into me knows that on a week-to-week -week basis, I've talked about how USC is the most overrated, if not one of the most overrated programs in the country. They were surviving in the top 10 of the polls because of their brand. They were being propped up because they were back, because Lincoln Riley was there, Caleb Williams was there, they got Jordan Addison, they got all of these transfer portal guys, and the hype was there. But once we started watching them, the issues, the holes on this roster started to show. They've got issues at linebacker. They also have some issues in some of the spots in their secondary. And most importantly, their offensive line is not good. And in this USC-Utah game, we saw all of that come to fruition and it cost them the football game. They gave up a ton of points to Utah's offense, which is good. It's strong. And we've seen them put up a lot of points in various games so far this season, but they are not that much more explosive than U uh, USC's offense to outplay them. And the, 
That was weird. My mic just completely acted up. The biggest indication here that they have a defensive problem is that Dalton Kincaid had 200 receiving yards and 15 receptions. He took over this football game. Dalton Kincaid is a very talented tight end, but to not be able to neutralize a tight end at the college level for him to have that type of a performance is pretty strong proof that your defense has issues that need to be corrected. Nobody could cover him one-on-one, and there was no adjustment by Alex Grinch to put any additional coverage on him. It was a lot of one-on-one matchups for Dalton Kincaid, and he kept taking over and capitalizing on them. It was a very, very odd decision by USC's defense and Alex Grinch to not adapt. It was throughout the entire game that he was making all of these plays. He was consistently dominant because they did not adjust to the issues that were blatantly in front of their face. Put a second guy on him. If you don't have a linebacker or a corner who can cover him, put a second guy on him. Do something to neutralize the guy that is kicking your ass, and he's the one who won them the football game. Cam Rising played out of his mind, too, and he had a really good performance. I think Cam Rising continues to be you know, brought down a little bit. The offensive line for USC showed up to the, the issues that they have. I don't know off the top of my head the amount of pressures and sacks that they gave up, but there were a lot of times where USC's offense was moving, it was moving, and then their drive would completely fall apart because of pressure in Caleb's face or because he was getting sacked. Those offensive line issues were so bad in this game. And Utah's defense is good, but like their pass rush isn't that much more dominant than you know, than USC. Like they, they're not like one of the best pass rushes in the country in terms of talent, but they showed up to play in a circumstance in a game where they knew that they could take advantage of a weak offensive line group. And Utah's defense decided to be as aggressive as possible. And heck, I even point to that final play, which was like an attempted throw to pick up a huge gain. And Caleb Williams was heavily pressured on that play. He had guys chasing him down on that play. And they didn't even send that much pressure. The main takeaway from this is that USC, albeit is significantly improved, is still a year away from the program that everyone thought that they were at the beginning of this season. They are not a college football playoff team yet. They probably will be next year. After another year of Caleb Williams being the starting quarterback and a lot of those guys returning, but they are a year away. We need to acknowledge who the real players are in the Pac-12 are, which are Oregon, which are UCLA, and that's about it right now. I know that Utah won this game, but they're probably not because of those two losses going to win the Pac-12. Moving on to TCU, Oklahoma State. Um, Actually, wait, I want to really quickly get to some of the comments that we have. Um, Yes, I know I do say a lot of stupid things, Colin, a quick point from Dalton Kincaid is the Pac-12 version of Brock Bowers. Um, not in terms of talent, but in terms of production, I don't disagree. He's the best tight end in the Pac-12. Like, there's no debate there. And for the 2023 draft, for anyone who's checked out any of our content, I, I don't think we did an evaluation on Dalton Kincaid. But after Michael Mayer, there's a bit of a drop-off and a conversation to be made for who the second tight end, best tight end is in this class. I spoke very very highly of Cam Latu of Alabama 
and he hasn't really stepped up. I spoke very highly of Texas's Jaleel Billingsley, and he has been non-existent so far this season. I think Dalton Kincaid might very well be the second tight end or the third tight end selected this year. He is a, a top 50 pick. The performances that he's shown, and especially this game, has proven that he is... He, He's going to be one of the top five tight ends selected and very well likely a, a top 50 pick. I, I think at the very least, based on this performance alone, he's the top three tight end in the class and he deserves the recognition for it. All right, time to talk about TCU Oklahoma State. I will admit when I'm wrong on this on this stream. And I know that everyone, I, and Colin even pointed it out to, to laugh at me. I say a lot of things and a lot of people try to call me out on my, you know, certain takes that I have that might be a little ridiculous. And sometimes I get proven wrong. And I always encourage people to call me out and tell me I'm wrong. It's, it's part of the, you know, it's part of what comes with me making these statements. But I will always come on here and admit that I'm also wrong. I will, I'm never that stubborn to sit here and, and pretend like I'm always right. And I bashed TCU the entirety of the season. I have bashed Max Duggan as not being a good quarterback. I don't think he's that great still. But Max Duggan and TCU has proven a lot to me after this game. And I am admitting to the Horn Frogs that I was wrong about them in my evaluation. This game was a real head scratcher for Oklahoma State because they were playing really well up until about the third quarter. And the offensive play calling was very, very questionable. They put up some early points, and then they had some drive stall out where they started kicking field goals, and that's what helped TCU get back into the game. But what I'm referring to is that the whole game, they were running all these goofy trick plays, and they kept running a lot of screens. And if a team is doing that, you're usually not well-prepared or well-matched up with your opponent. If you have to rely on that to win a football game, you usually don't have enough confidence in your skill players and your roster to score points normally. And towards the third, fourth quarter, when the fourth quarter hit, they ran out of trick plays. TCU stayed the course, and I give a ton of credit to Sonny Dykes and this, this TCU team to not overly compensating to what Oklahoma State was doing. They're, they maintained their defensive approach because by the time the fourth quarter came, they just said, all right, keep running these screens. We know that you're going to run them. Keep trying to run these, these slow developing plays and we're gonna we're gonna get sacks. We're gonna take we're gonna get after Spencer Sanders if you're gonna keep running these slow developing plays in these screens. Eventually, we're gonna get to him, and that's what happened. That is what caused their offense to stall. Gundy was not not prepared to do anything outside of this these screens and these in these trick plays and these slow developing plays, and it caught up to him. And the grit and the fight that TCU showed to climb back into this game, I got to give them a hell of a lot of credit. They deserve to be in the top 10 discussion, maybe even the top seven discussion. And there is going to be a legitimate battle between them and I think maybe Texas right now or Kansas State for that Big 12 championship. It is going to be hard to predict who that matchup is going to be between. And I keep saying a different team every single week because it's probably the most unpredictable conference. But as of right now, after that game, TCU looks like they are the best shot to win the Big 12 and again, are another team that will fit into the conversation of who is the fourth team in the college football playoff. If they went out, they are going to place themselves in that position. And I, I really quickly want to look up what the rest, the remaining schedule is. Because 
that might have been one of their more difficult matchups. So after that, they play Kansas State. If you win that football game, your next hurdle is Texas. They have games against West Virginia, Texas Tech, Baylor, and Iowa State, which are all winnable for them. But their season and the outcome of their season is going to come down to that Kansas State game and that Texas game. And Texas had their own issues that popped up when they played against Iowa State. TCU looks really good, man. And I there was even a note here from, from Colin. I give credit to Duggan for doing better than I was willing to admit he's capable of being. He's a great athlete. He's a really good college quarterback. And because he's hard to contain, it ends up opening him up to, to get a lot of easy completions. And his completion percentage, his QBR is through the roof right now. It's one of the best in the country. I was a little perplexed when I was reading a lot up on Duggan that his numbers were this good. His efficiency was is one of the best in the country. When you watch him play, it's he doesn't look like a guy that would be hitting those standards. But it helps when you're a guy like Max Duggan to have a man as freakish as Quinton Johnson to throw the football to. Quinton Johnson, the, the, the remainder of the receiving core for TCU is talented. It's explosive. They can pick up huge chunk plays in that in a second, and that's why TCU is always going to be in any football game that they might be down by two or more scores, like they were in this game against Oklahoma State. But Quinton Johnson is the best amongst the group. He's six foot four. He's about two hundred fifteen pounds. He's going to run in the four fours. I will post clips of him on the YouTube Shorts and on on our TikTok channel every single freaking week if he keeps making plays the way that he's making them. The body control, the strength, the power. The just overall athleticism is on a freakish level. There are not that many guys in the country, very few in the country, that can do things that Quentin Johnson can do. And I, I've talked to Ryan Roberts, who's my co-host for the draft show on this channel, and he's kind of giving me shit because I've said that I think he might be in the conversation for wide receiver one because the class is not as good as, as previous ones. But the more performances and more plays I keep seeing from Quentin Johnson like this, the more I'm willing to reconsider and make that judgment, make that assertion. I am excited to watch his full tape at the end of the season when I do my evaluations because so far, the highlight plays, the concentration, the body control, the explosiveness on his breaks, everything that he has shown is up to the level of being one of the top receivers selected and maybe a first-round pick in the 2023 NFL Draft. But he... I think deserves to be in, in a conversation for the Blitnikoff. The way that he is playing, the games and the numbers that he is putting up is Blitnikoff worthy. There are a lot of arguments to be made for him, and I absolutely love on a week-to-week basis just showing up in my timeline another crazy catch by Quentin Johnson. And if you don't know who, who he is, if you have no idea who Quentin Johnson is, go look up his highlights. Go watch his highlights. And you're going to be as distracted and I'm trying to think the best word for this because it's almost undescribable. You will be so at a loss of words is the perfect way to describe it in this circumstance of, of how talented he is. Getting on to Michigan versus Penn state. This is like an obligation, you know, obligation here to, to talk about. Because this game was a bit of a snoozer. It was, it was tight at halftime, and Michigan was playing with its food. It was a little slow to get going. And I, I know that this was like top-ranked 
battle between two Big Ten rivals, and there was a lot that was going into this game for the, the final Big Ten standings. But I think a lot of us knew, and I said this in my preview that I did, that Penn State is just not up to par with Michigan. Penn State's a really good Big Ten team. They're a really quality program. They've got a lot of nice athletes. They've got a lot of really good young players that I think in a couple of years are going to make them equally as competitive as they are right now. But at the best, they're the third or fourth best team in the conference. And there's a massive gap right now between Michigan and Ohio State. And we witnessed the full effect of that, the full extent of that, that massive gap between these two teams in this game. Because as soon as Michigan caught a little bit of space on some rushing plays, they took over the game. And I was watching this game, and I verbally said out loud to the person I was watching the game with, after the first big Blake Corum run that he broke, that's going to be what, what opens this game up. That's going to be what helps Michigan pull away. And I, I don't, I'm sure most of you who watch the game know the play that I'm talking about, where it was still 14 14 or it was still like a one score game. And Corum broke off for a huge run. And then that set up more rushing touchdowns. The way that they are picking up huge chunk plays in these games on the ground is an, a full example of how freaking good they are on offense. J.J. McCarthy doesn't really have to do that much. And we kind of saw this last year when Cade McNamara was the quarterback, that they leaned on their run game on a week-to-week basis. And then if Cade had to you know, make, make some plays to keep them ahead of schedule, he was capable of doing it. But now the thing that makes this team so much more dangerous is that J.J. has the gunslinger mentality in him. He's got the arm. He's got the the mobility, the ability to make plays on the run, that he can make key important plays that are more than just on schedule plays to keep the offense moving, to change of pace, to throw the ball because you can't run the ball every down. JJ can make those throws. Now, does he alleviate the mistakes like that pick six that it was thrown by him? And I know that that is a incredibly lucky bounce that it bounces off of somebody's helmet and into a, a defender's hands, but it was a very risky throw on his part for him to throw that football. J.J., if he eliminates those mistakes, is not up to par with C.J. Stroud, but the supporting cast around him is going to set them up to potentially win the Big Ten. Now, my additional takeaway from this game, it is going to be a bloodbath, a a, a total fist fight, a rock fight, if you will, between Michigan and Ohio State when they face off with each other at the end of the season. That is going to be a battle for the ages, and then whoever wins that game We'll go on to probably play Illinois and blast them in the Big Ten championship game. What makes that really exciting for me is that both of these teams are winning because of their offenses, and and it's being supported heavily by shutdown performances by their defenses. But the offensive success for these two teams is vastly different. Michigan is doing it with Donovan Edwards and Blake Corum with 250, 300 rushing performances as a team. And then on the flip side of things, CJ Stroud and company, Marvin Harrison Jr., Jackson Smith and Jigba, just to name a couple of the amazing receivers on that roster, are doing it through the air. So when that battle happens, and I'm excited to to preview that game, which side wins? And it's going to come down to Is Michigan's pass defense better than Ohio State's run defense and vice versa? Because that's the battle there. That's the matchup. 
And that's going to decide who wins the Big Ten. That is going to be the, the, the deciding factor in who wins the Big Ten. Colin's asking, can the Big Ten just make this year's championship game between the top two teams in the East? It's something that I've always wondered because as of late, like the past decade or more, there has been a serious lopsidedness to how freaking good the East is. And like you, you look past the East, past Ohio, or not past these, past Ohio State and Michigan, all the other good teams that are sprinkled below them and the competitiveness between those teams that kind of just eat each other up because they're, they're knocking each other down throughout the season. I think and I, I feel as this conference expands, you do have to consider moving on to the, the setup that the Pac-12 just initiated. And I believe the Big 12 is also eventually initiating because you want parity in the Big Ten championship game. You are making more of an emphasis in getting all this money for these massive broadcasting deals. You need to then eventually make the Big Ten championship game the pinnacle of the season. The pinnacle of the season and the and the the biggest game of the year can't be Michigan Ohio State. It, it just can't. That game has a, a vast importance, and a lot of people are going to be tuning into that game. But you need to make that that championship game more competitive. As fun as Illinois is right now, they do not stack up with Michigan and Ohio State. I said that a second ago, a couple minutes ago. I pointed out that there is a huge drop-off after those two teams. And again, as fun as Illinois is and as exciting as they are to watch on defense, they are not going to be able to keep up in, in that championship game. It's going to be like the past where we've seen whoever the, the unlucky team is, if it's Northwestern or Wisconsin, that faces the opponent Whatever opponent it is, Michigan or Ohio State, they usually get dominated. There needs to be an adjustment so that the that Big Ten championship game is more competitive. And if we have to watch Michigan and Ohio State play each other in back-to-back -back weeks, I am all for it. I would love to see that. That would be exciting football, and it would make for a much better product in Big Ten play. For anyone who's joining us, drop a comment. We've got a, uh, like a, a number of them that I'm going to hit on. Um, a little bit later on after I finish with my last point here. But the, the one thing I want to bring up is the outcome of Notre Dame's loss to Stanford. I made the bold statement after Notre Dame lost to Marshall of saying that Marcus Freeman should be fired. And at certain points after that, I kind of regretted making that statement because I let everyone get in my head. Every supporter of Marcus Freeman came in, and and so many pundits too. Like they're they're not pundits, but like other bigger Notre Dame channels, came in to make comments on my thoughts to make it seem like I was an idiot and I had no idea what I was talking about. And for them to lose to Stanford at home just furthers my point. I understand that this game had horrendous officiating, and some of these calls impacted the outcome of the game. I understand that. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it didn't. But when you watch Notre Dame on a week-to-week -week basis, and this was another perfect example of this, they look severely underprepared. They look flat. There is no aggression. There is no tone in which they you see a team that wants to put a team into the dirt and completely eliminate them and take them out of the game and win in a dominant fashion. We've seen against BYU in North Carolina, them almost blowing leads. And then in games where they need to pull away and take a lead, 
they look flat and they look soft. I do recognize the blame that goes on Tommy Rees for the questionable play calling. And I recognize the blame that goes on Drew Pine, who is not a power five caliber quarterback, the way that he keeps missing these five yard throws. But when your team across the board does not look ready to play and looks as soft as they do and doesn't have a relentless effort play in and play out, that comes down to the preparation by your head coach. Your head coach is responsible for getting your team ready. Tennessee came out with a fire lit under their ass against Alabama, and Notre Dame can't even come to rally against Marshall and Stanford. And it's not even like an instance where a better team is playing with their food. They just look apathetic. They don't look like they give a shit. And again, anyone who disagrees with me either doesn't know football or is not paying attention to these games in full effect. I so badly wanted Marcus Freeman to work. I so badly wanted him to be the guy. And I was excited by the early indications of even when he was a defensive coordinator that he was going to have a positive return on this program. But all it has taken is the start of the season, six games for me to know that he will not be the one who gets them back to the national championship. They're going to be mediocre. They're going to be as good as freaking BYU. That is what their ceiling is right now under Marcus Freeman. That is what they look like. They look like a bunch of quality players that are just going to show up and maybe win some games, maybe lose some games. That has no care in the world if they win the football game. I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. And Marcus Freeman looks lost on the sidelines. He doesn't look like he knows what he's doing. He looks flustered every game. They kept panning over to him in this game and he looked like he was losing his shit on every single play. And not in a way like where he was upset. He looked legitimately flustered. He's in over his head. I don't, I'm not saying that Freeman can't be a good head coach down the line, but this was too soon. And it's okay to admit your mistake, Notre Dame, and they're probably going to give him a long runway before they move on. They're probably going to give him a couple of years. And the typical move in this circumstance is to fire Tommy Rees and then use that as the scapegoat. And they're going to have the same goddamn problems that they had last year because all these guys were treated way too easily during the offseason and during training camp and during conditioning, apparently. All the players love them because they've been treated too softly and they're playing exactly like they did. Exactly like that. I have played on teams. And I understand I played at the FCS level. And I know that there's a lot of people that try to knock me for, for not having played at the FBS and talking about the FBS and and, and trying to relate these these two things, provide correlation. But I have played on teams in my four years in college in which our coach went easy on us in practice, in training camp, in conditioning, and there was an apathy from the head coach, but we had one of the most talented rosters in the CAA. We had the top recruiting class in the CAA my freshman year, and we never won football games, and we always lost in games when adversity hit because we were not prepared. And it came down to the implementation and the instruction and the tone set by our head coach. He did not properly prepare us. And in this circumstance, Marcus Freeman is not properly preparing his team. Fans of FBS teams love Freeman in Notre Dame. I, I mean, yeah, because everyone that doesn't like Notre Dame, if you're not a Notre Dame fan, you usually hate Notre Dame. That's the result there. That is the truth. And I, I think that anyone who's tuning in on the replay or in live 
agrees with that statement. Most people, it's like the Dallas Cowboys. If you're not a Dallas Cowboys fan, you hate the Dallas Cowboys. Same thing with the Yankees. Of course, everyone likes Marcus Freeman because it's it's going to they're going to give him a couple of years and they're gonna win like a bunch of eight win seasons. And those that are supporters of him are going to hang their hat on that and say like, hey, look at look at these eight, these winning eight win seasons. We're going to a bowl game. We've got nine wins. That's that's not what Notre Dame's supposed to be. Notre Dame's supposed to be competing for a national championship, and they've been far from it. Winning seasons doesn't mean shit. I mean, I'm glad that we're not Nebraska right now, but a winning season. Doesn't mean shit if you're not if you're Notre Dame and you're not winning a national championship or at least competing for one. I don't necessarily agree with this that player coaches are the worst worst, but if it's not the right player coach who doesn't know how to flip the switch when you're between the lines at practice, then then they are the worst. If you know how to relate to your players, that's important, and there's a reason why he's able to recruit so well. But if you're not effectively preparing your guys because you're too afraid to impact your relationship with them. That's what leads to issues. And like, I know it's not the, the greatest example. Actually, I, it's kind of an outlier. Bill Belichick has notoriously been known for being cold-blooded. He has been known to not build relationships with players because he wants to have the ability to just move on from them on any given notice without feeling bad about it. He is, and if, if you are unaware of his background, go read the, the book, The Dynasty. We talked about it a lot. It gets brought up a lot that Bill Belichick did not want to establish relationships with his players so that he could treat them like players and not like his friend. If you cross that line where a player feels like a friend to you, you do not know how to tell them the hard truth and coach them up. Coaches need to be willing to yell at players, need to be able to motivate them, and you can't do that if you're trying to be buddy-buddy with them. There has to be a separation. You need to be a father figure, not a friend. There's a huge difference, and that can't be the case. Like I think like Nick Saban fits that mold too. You don't hear about Nick Saban being a, a player's coach. He's a great recruiter, and his coaching staff is you know, a great recruiting. Heck, Nick Saban isn't even necessarily really friends with the guys on his coaching staff. You hear about the, the tension that builds up with his assistants. He's doing what it takes to win football games, which is separating the, the relationship from what needs to be done to produce results. The best coaches are very rarely the player coaches. The only time, I'm blanking on the name of the coach, but in, in the one of the years that Miami won a national championship game, like that was like a good example of like a player's coach that work, works where you have like a really good roster and everybody just gels together and you don't get in their way and you just kind of let them keep going. But that's one of the few examples I would write on that. Anyone else who's joining us, feel free to drop a comment. Uh, would like to get to any other notes that anyone has. Brian threw in here. I wonder if Eric Gilbert gets it together. I, I'm uh, Eric Gilbert is such a uh, an odd circumstance, and he's very hard to predict what his outcome is going to be here. the The term in the the background is that it's been off the field issues. We don't really know what that is, and it, I think it's just a kid who's been dealing with a lot of things in life that have, have kind of held him down, and maybe it's mental health issues. I'm not exactly sure what it is. But for him, like he's got all the talent in the world. I don't think this is a guy that keeps getting in trouble or doesn't gel with the coaching staff because they don't like the way that he's acting. I don't think that he's that type of guy. I don't think he's that type of guy at all. I just think he's a kid that needs to figure out how to to be, you know, handle everything that's going on in his life. But Eric Gilbert has all the talent. The guy is built like Kyle Pitts. He's got the speed, the athleticism. If he can 
put all that other thing, all those other things behind him, he will be a, a top drafted tight end. Probably not in this class, though. If he enters this class, he's not getting drafted. The off the field, it's not off the field concerns necessarily, but the concerns of if he's going to show up are going to be hyper asphyxiated by scouts who are going to tell teams not to draft him. As talented as he is. I don't know where Sean is. Colin is a point of contention on a day-to-day basis. and he, like, I, I'd love for him to show up. He talks a big game. He talks a big game about how he wants to be a part of these streams, and he talks a big game about how he wants the, the channel to grow, but I'm the only one here. I even I even texted and asked when we're recording the FCS show, and I don't even get, get a goddamn answer from him. But I don't know. I don't know where Sean is. Maybe you can get him to show up next time. Um, I think that's a good note to wrap us up on. Thank you for everyone who did hop in. This was a um, <laughs> it's a little big for a leash. Um, this is fun talking about week seven, which is a really fun week of college football. Probably one of our best one of our best streams in terms of terms of uh, interaction from listeners, and I think it helps when Colin's here, head of marketing. Colin, Colin, can you please inform me of your schedule when you're not going to show up? I would like to have my executive of of uh, of marketing available when I do the live streams because you do help the chat. Um, and you do have an important role in this channel and I very much appreciate you. I know I give you shit on Twitter, but I appreciate you showing up and doing this. Um, have a shit on shit. I, I don't, I don't, I don't mind doing that, but anyone who did join in or is joining late watching the replay do please hit that like button. Uh, I want to keep doing these streams and when the streams are as good as this one in terms of participation, in terms of viewership, one of the highest viewed ones that we had, I think we were close to 20 at one point. It makes me want to keep doing it. And like last week and a couple of weeks, it was a little frustrating, but I'm excited. I love just talking about college football and appreciate anyone who wants to sit in with me. We'll be back. I, I need to figure out the thing that gets really complicated is when the hell am I going to do the, the preview shows? Because when I do the preview shows on Tuesday nights, nobody tunes in, nobody joins live. And so it's like, okay, why would I join, you know, go live when the quality of the conversations aren't as good? Cause I'm doing it at the end of the day on a Tuesday for two people to join live. If there were 10, like we get on these to, to 20, like we get on these reaction shows, it would be a little bit more worth it. Um, I'm thinking, and I, I want to, um, I'm thinking that maybe the thing that makes sense here is I want to test a, a Tuesday morning. I did just like a taped one. I do need to do, I do need to, I do need to start tweeting it out. I'll, I'll probably tweet out the replay. Uh, I, I wonder if like a Tuesday morning on my time, so like probably like a 7 a.m. Pacific time, 10 a.m. Eastern time might work, and I want to test that out. The replay version, like the or not the replay, the taped version did not go as well as I wanted it to, uh, but we're going to play around with it. We're going to try to keep testing things, and that's the whole point of this season. We're trying different things. We're trying different stuff, and we're going to see what works, and the next season we're going to continue to build that momentum. But everyone who did join again, Huge thank you, and we'll be back with more. Talk to you later, folks. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done.